for whatever reason, people see you doing that and just sharing it. They want to help out. Of all the like different types of marketing, I think for developers, people like me, maybe the easiest one is to just like talk about what you're doing. It doesn't really take any special knowledge. You don't have to study. You just literally do a thing and then say, hey, I did this thing. I'm thinking about doing this other thing. What do you guys think? And they'll tell you. Welcome to the Tech Culture Podcast, a podcast about careers, products, and business ideas related to tech. I'm your host, Kostub. I'm your host, Prashant. Welcome everyone to the podcast. So we are doing this slightly different because we have a guest on a podcast. Yay! Yeah! We are here with Eric Turner, the founder of Japan Dev. So Japan Dev is a job board which curates high-quality tech jobs in Japan. And he's trying to improve the image of Japan towards foreign tech workers and like tech industry in general. Eric is also building VCList.jp where you can browse top venture capital firms in Japan. First of all, welcome. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for that intro. It's a pretty good uh, rundown of what I'm doing. So thanks. So one of the very big questions that we wanted to ask you is that you recently quit your full-time job and you started working full-time on Japan Dev as well as some of your other products. So how is your day-to-day life different now? How is it different from when you were working full-time? Yep, that's a really great question. I mean, it's different in a lot of ways, obviously. I feel like one thing that it's like a major difference is um, the way that I look at my time now, you know, before I feel like it was pretty much prescribed. You know what I mean? When you're working at a company, you're doing basically the same thing every day for eight hours. You know, you know what's coming, right? You can kind of look ahead and see like, this is what I'm doing this quarter. You know, maybe there'll be some, you know, changes like you'll switch to a new team, something like that. But it's like probably for the next year or so, you can kind of visualize exactly what your day is going to look like, right? Now, that's really not the case anymore. <laughs> you know, uh, two days can be totally different from one another, right? Like, I don't really know what I'm going to be walking into in a given day, right? And I could be jumping between different, like completely different tasks, right? Like I could be doing sales one day and be knee deep in like CSS and like JavaScript the next day trying to fix bugs, right? So I'm an engineer one day, I'm a salesman the next, I'm a marketing person the day after that, right? So there's a lot more variance, I would say. I mean, I guess there's a little bit of the uh, the fear of the unknown <laughs> that kind of enters into it because it's just like a lot less stable and a lot more like, I don't know what, what what's going to be on the menu today. You know, that that's one big thing I would say. Earlier, you used to have OKRs and daily standups to keep yourself accountable. Now that you're your own boss, how do you keep yourself accountable or how do you keep track of your long-term goals? Yeah, that's a really good question. First of all, I don't have OKRs anymore. I've simplified a lot of that. You know, I have a to-do list that I try to keep updated, but it's pretty basic at this point since I don't really have to collaborate with anyone else, right? I have a lot more freedom, which is good, but also bad. (laughs) So, you know, because there's going to be a lot less structure. And if I want to now, I can kind of just slack off and uh, there's not going to be anyone necessarily yelling at me or asking me what I was working on, that kind of thing. So it takes a lot more uh, personal, I guess, motivation. So you need to figure out how to kind of do that. And yeah, I'm still kind of trying to figure it out, to be honest, <laughs> and find a good uh, good medium. I have uh, reverted to a kind of a schedule that uh, I couldn't really have done if I had been working at a company, I don't think. Um, but I'm kind of a night owl. So I think that's actually working well for me. I'll do a lot of my deep work very late at night, like literally like probably 12 a.m. to like 3, 4 a.m. is when I really am uh, you know, do, doing, doing the real work. So that, that's one kind of nice thing about it is I can just focus 
Um, and I never really did that, at least when I was working at a company. So it's got pros and cons, I would say. Are there any specific tools which you absolutely love using? So I have a to-do list uh, that I try to keep updated in Notion. And that's actually pretty much where I just keep everything at this point. I didn't really understand how to use it at first. It was kind of overwhelming. But now that I'm kind of getting more used to it, I actually really love Notion. And it's kind of amazing the amount of value I'm getting from it because I don't even think I'm paying them any money or anything. But uh, I set up this to-do list that automatically removes stuff after a certain period of time. And that's been actually awesome. And that's something I've kind of always wanted because, uh, you know, if it's on the to-do list for like a month or whatever, you know, for two months and you end up not getting to it, then it wasn't really that important, was it? So I've got some little tricks like that. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know, if it really was important, then I'll think of it again and add it, like re-add it, you know what I mean? So, you know, there's some small efficiency tricks like that that I'll use. But yeah, it's pretty much just like waking up, checking out the to-do list, you know, seeing what I'm, what, what I'm willing to kind of get into that day. And uh, yeah, in that sense, it's not really that different, to be honest. It's just, we don't really have, I don't have the team meetings or anything like that. It's more just, I have to kind of figure it out on my own. So you work on most of the stuff for Japan Dev and other products yourself, like uh, engineering or sales or marketing and everything. So obviously you have worked as an engineer before, so that stuff might be a little bit easier, but what kind of stuff takes you most of the time? I am an engineer, as you guys are as well. To be honest, like the easiest tasks are the coding tasks, right? And I actually have to watch myself a little bit um, and make sure that I'm not favoring those too much, um, just because obviously that's those are the ones that are the easiest for me. And it's super easy to just jump in and fix a bug or whatever, but it's always a question of like, is this going to be the task that's most valuable for the users or is there something else I could do that would be more valuable? You know, a lot of the time that is going to be like marketing and sales, getting more companies on on the job board, more jobs, adding like major new features and stuff like that, of course is good too. But yeah, I, I, I have to generally watch myself and make sure that I am getting a good mix and making sure that I'm doing the promotion and the marketing stuff as well, which I find a lot more difficult, <laughs> but also very important and maybe more valuable uh, a lot of the time. So, Since your target audience is mostly also engineers, you don't really have to market it to like a lot generic audience. What activity do you think gives you like the highest ROI? Like, Is it marketing? Is it designing or getting new jobs on the board? In terms of business itself, you mean? Like if I want to like Im- increase my revenue or something like that, mm-hmm. that is actually pretty clear cut. There are usually things that I could do. I mean, there's essentially a funnel, right, for any company. And I have one where it's basically... You know, people will come to the site and the goal is to get them to apply to jobs, right? So if there's anything that I can do to kind of make that that path more efficient or more benefit-driven so it's more clear why it's in their best interest to apply for jobs or just really like kind of promote them more widely, any of that kind of stuff is what really drive, like can move the needle in terms of like actually improving the the business and the KPIs and everything. So that is one thing that I definitely think about a lot is like, where are people dropping off in the funnel? How can I make the UX better? Where can I share jobs online to get more people into the funnel in the first place? So yeah, essentially marketing at the end of the day, like marketing, promotion, distribution, those are probably the most uh, impactful things, I would say, which is unfortunate because that's not my background at all. It's what I've had to kind of learn. And that, that's really been the hardest part for me, I would say. Yeah, so uh, one other thing about Japan Dev is like, if some people are using it and they find a new job, they're not going to use it again for the next maybe two or three years, right? So this makes it a lit- little bit uh, difficult to get continuous revenue because they're not repeating customers. So do you like find marketing difficult due to this? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a limiting factor. 
you know, it, at least it's not like a one time only purchase or anything like that. Like there is a cycle. And like you said, it is probably about two or three years. The question is just, you know, is the market big enough that you can um, have that two to three year cycle and make sure that you'll still have enough applicants for it to be a viable business, right? And I think that that is definitely the case. Obviously, I'd prefer if they change jobs a little more frequently, <laughs> just in terms of the business. <laughs> but I, I do think that uh, that that cycle is totally fine. There are enough people interested in working in Japan right now in these sort of like modern companies that I'm trying to push on my my site. And I also think it's actually growing uh, the the number of people trying to uh, you know work in these types of positions. So I feel pretty good about the market overall. But yeah, it would be nice. <laughs> if uh, if that wasn't the case, right? If if they could just come back and use the site every day for years, right? And but it's, it is not that kind of service, unfortunately. Although your customers are won't come back, maybe for two three years, it still has very good word of mouth publicity. When people who want to move to Japan post on subreddits like "moving to Japan" or "Japan life," I can see a lot of people recommending Japan Dev to find new jobs. So it might be either like there's a good reputation for Japan Dev or it's just you using 10 different accounts to boost Japan Dev. Either way, it's working. Recently in the global market, so if you see their trends in US, or I've also been watching their trends in India, and the jobs in tech sector are really booming and like salaries are increasing by a lot. So do you also see similar trends in Japan right now? Yeah, Japan's an interesting case right now, of course, given the whole COVID uh, you know, restrictions. The borders are not really open to people getting new visas to move here. So that has created a little bit of interesting situation, right? Where it's a great market right now for people within Japan. And that's obviously one sector of our users. But then there's also the sector of people who want to move to Japan from elsewhere, and they're not able to do that right now. So I think the number of people who are able to move has decreased. And there are still some people who are going to be getting jobs uh, where they're going to be working overseas for a little while and then moving over to Japan when it's safe to do so. But that has created this really interesting uh, climate right now, um, where I think it's actually a great time to change jobs if you're already here in Japan. That's good for people here already, right? But it doesn't help people over in the US or somewhere where they're you know, trying to get to Japan, but they can't. But yeah, I think there is like a clear need for uh, like talented engineers. That's true in the US. It's true in Japan. I think it's especially true in Japan, actually, because it's still lagging behind a little bit in terms of like the software developer education, things like that. So there aren't as many people like coming out of colleges here with the skills to really jump in and work at the types of companies that we specialize in. So I think that that lack of engineers, that demand is going to keep getting stronger and stronger. So I think, yeah, it's a great time for the market right now. Also, the amount of uh, like startups has been increasing. The amount of venture funding has been going up. I mean, it's still pretty small relative to somewhere like the US, but it's increasing a lot as well. So I think there's a lot of factors actually that make it a really interesting place to be right now. Since there are different, like most startups coming in, what are some different job profiles that you see? Like they are a class apart from the normal job postings that you see on average. So how are like companies attracting new talent, basically? There's the job posts themselves. I think there's still a lot of room for improvement, to be honest. <laughs> we can go into that if you want. <laughs> like the, you know, kind of how to write a nice, nice job description. Copywriting, copywriting, copywriting. It's a very important skill. It's so important. And uh, the, average level, I feel like, of the copywriting in job descriptions is still just not there. So I, you know, I always try to tell companies that, like, make it benefit-driven. You know, my philosophy about that is, like, you got to act like every 
applicant is a potential hire and like could be the next like superstar, right? Obviously, you know, the statistics say that like maybe you'll hire one in a hundred or so, you know, most of them won't actually get through your interview, but you have to, I think, approach it from the assumption that like every person you're talking to could be, and then you're really trying to attract them. Here's why this is a great place to work. Here's why we want, you know, what you can do if you work with us, that kind of thing. I feel like so many companies, you know, they approach it from this like kind of condescending thing where it's like, here are all the like hurdles that you have to get past. We need someone who has this and this and this and this, all these requirements. And it's like, why are you like giving them reasons not to apply? You know, you want as many people coming in because anyone could be that next like core person, right? So I think companies are going to have to learn that as the market becomes more strict and it's harder and harder to attract those top people. I think they're going to have to really understand that. And like you said, copywriting, figuring out how to write things in a way that really is like showing the benefit to people and really attracting them. I also think one thing companies really need to learn, (laughs) I think they really need to understand that um, it's not all about acquisition and like acquiring new talent, but it's also about trying to um, keep the people that you have and focusing more on retention. That's one thing that I just personally, like anecdotally, I've felt like so few companies really invest in like retention. And it's more like they build out these big like talent acquisition teams and it's constantly like, how do we get more people in into the company? And then if you look at like market like salaries, for example, uh, a lot of times they will be increasing like pretty quickly. And obviously there's this situation where you can kind of map it out and say like, oh, if I change jobs every two years, unfortunately, an engineer with two years of experience is worth a lot more than a new grad. And an engineer with four years of experience is worth a lot more than one with two. So you can say like, this is what I'll be worth in two years. This will be what I'll be worth in four years. And uh, basically, so few companies really are able to keep up with that progression, right? So it, it creates a situation where you can basically objectively look and say, well, I could stay at this company and earn X, or I could jump around a little bit and earn Y, and Y is significantly higher than X, unfortunately. So yeah, I think companies just need to understand that and say, like, look at the incentives and say, like, okay, this is how much we need to pay. But then instead of having to hire a new person and take that risk, we have this person that we like. So let's just keep them at the like the pay level where uh, it would actually be competitive with the market were they to be like switching jobs, right? So I think that dynamic, I think it'll 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 balance out. It'll reach like a some sort of uh, equilibrium. Yeah, exactly. But it hasn't yet. And I think that unfortunately that, that that's still kind of the case where in a lot of markets, at least, you know, it might it might depend on like the area and everything. But there's the situation where you can essentially make more by switching jobs because companies just don't invest as much in retention and, and making sure that they're paying competitive wages to their existing people. So that's another thing I think companies really just need to do better. Right. So coming back to talk more about Japan Dev. So how do you decide which new features you want to build for Japan Dev? What is the process of getting feedback from customers? One of the product that I recently found out about is it allows you to post a public vote where customers can post what features they want in your product and other customers can vote on those features as well. So you can directly find out which features are most highly requested by your customers. So what kind of mechanism do you follow to decide what do you want to work on? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I don't have like a super clear process for that and I'm not using any kind of like SaaS or whatever. That sounds very interesting. One part of it is that I will just do like kind of networking, especially when you could still do the in-person meetups like pre-COVID, right? I would just talk to as many people as I could in person. And then of course, like on the site, I have contact feedback buttons and whatnot um, scattered around. Sometimes people will 
send me messages about features that they'd like, things like that. I also try to like just use the site from the perspective of a user and really just think about things that are uh, suboptimal. But yeah, I mean, feature ideas can come from anywhere. Yeah, it, it really depends. Yeah, one of the interesting things that I think you do is I often see you uh, running A-B tests and you post about them on Twitter with like built-in public tags. So was there any test whose result you found quite interesting or whose result surprised you? And it's kind of funny because like I'm an engineer and uh, for a long time, I was all about like building systems and clean code and code style and testing and all that stuff. Now I've taken like a much more, I guess, utilitarian view of like coding. And one thing that I, one trend I've noticed is like, usually like the simpler something is, the more impactful it is. <laughs> Literally, like, like I said, I kind of have this funnel, right? And ultimately, I, I want people to apply to jobs through the site. And I have apply buttons. So I've done things like literally adding another apply button in the middle of a page that wasn't there before, had applications go up as a result, or I had like this animation, this like pulsing animation to the buttons that draws, draws your attention to them. I swear it's little things like that, making the buttons larger, just like using kind of bolder colors, making things more concise. For example, I'm trying to get people to sign up for the newsletter. I have um, text, a copy that's trying to get them to do that. Just making that as short as possible. Like the shorter you make it, it seems like the more people sign up. Yeah. And there's a million just like small tricks like that. When I really look back and see what was impactful in actually um, getting more people to apply and improving like the kind of the KPIs and everything, it's really mostly those things. It's not like, oh, I built this brand new like system from scratch and now everyone's using it. It's, there's, that's rarely the case, <laughs> to be honest. It's more just like, hmm, this button could be, could be even bigger, I think. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but yeah, landing pages, you know, like you're saying, copy, just buttons, like it's not rocket science most of the time. <laughs> it's really not. That has definitely changed the way that I think about development as well, because it's like ultimately uh, there's the business and there are certain levers that really control how much money you're making and you know how the business is going. And a lot of times it's not like that, the tech stuff, just simple, simple things, right? That don't even require code a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So sounds like you increase the button size by 20% and the number of applications increase by 20%. So how about just revamping the web page with just one big button apply? That would probably literally work. <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned like simpler things tend to work out and like they give great results. So this is still more related to like the development side and stuff. But what were some business practices that that might seem very obvious, but you personally had a hard time adapting them or like what were some of the business practices that you wish you had adapted sooner? Well, I think especially early on, I, I guess I focused a little bit too much on the tech side and I got into I guess I got a little bit of tunnel vision in the sense that I was focused on building the product, but I made the usual mistake of having an idea and then just building it, you know, without really talking to actual users and without really thinking about like the market, who my target user is. And that's one thing I learned is like, you got to really know who you're building it for and, uh, you know, how many of those people there are, where they are, so that you can think about how to actually distribute what you're building to them. That is huge, like marketing distribution, like I said. When I initially released Japan Dev, it was pretty different from the current site. There were no jobs, actually. It was literally just like kind of a glass door type site where it was like, I want to tell people about the good companies here in Japan. 
they offer actually good environments for English speakers, people not from Japan who want to work here in Japan, right? And avoid like kind of the older school Japanese companies that you may or may not have heard of, you know, some horror stories about, right? <laughs> um, uh, uh, black companies. Uh, uh. Quote unquote black companies, right? Because everyone's heard about, about that and like the Japanese work culture, right? And I realized like, wow, there's so many great companies here that yes, you have to be careful. You got to search and make sure that, you know, you're working for somewhere that's more international if that's what you're looking for. But let me try to like share that with people. And it just came as a result of like my own job search and everything. I, was, I, I learned more and more about the market every time. I had this like big Trello board of like companies that I personally was interested in. I was like, you know, I should just like share this. So that was the original MVP. It was literally just like, here's 50 companies that I'm kind of vouching for and saying these are actually good places to work. Globally competitive, they offer actually good environments uh, for people like us. And um, people looked at the site. It got some decent buzz, right? People were like, oh, this is cool. Yeah, like I'll check out these companies. But then it started, it became very clear quickly that people were like, okay, cool. Like, uh, where's the apply button? <laughs> How do I actually apply? <laughs> and I was like, oh, people don't want a list of companies. They literally just want jobs, right? They want something a level beyond that. And I kind of did want that, but I realized that like that it's a market of one, literally just myself, right? And of course, there are some other, there's always going to be some people like that, but you know, you actually have to figure out what the market truly wants. So not checking with people, just building too much without thinking about the market. And like, of course, I had no plan for like distribution or any of that kind of stuff. I was just kind of hoping, oh, I'll put it out there and uh, hopefully people will just use it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so I kind of figured some of that stuff out later, but I'm still not particularly strong at like the marketing side of things. And I think that's something that a lot of engineers do. So that would be my advice for people. You know, if you're an engineer, you're looking to start a company, like really, really think about the market and who your target customer is. I know it sounds cliche. And everyone's like, oh yeah, I know. I know to do that. I knew you were supposed to do it. I didn't. No one actually does. <laughs> that's the thing. Everyone knows in their head. Yeah, that's the thing you got to do. You got to have like a persona and like know who your target user is, right? Like I, I, I know. It's like, do you though? Who is it? They're like, uh, you know, <laughs> and that's, that's basically... That's the situation I was in. And uh, I figured it out kind of after the fact. But yeah, th I made all those mistakes. So essentially, what I had to do was pivot and say, like, okay, this isn't going to work. By the way, like, this is supposed to be a B2B service. I'm going to get money from the companies. And companies are very, very strict about their like public image, right? So that was also just like a complete non starter. I had this feature where you could do like kind of essentially reviews, kind of like Glassdoor, where it's like you can kind of write up pros and cons of the different companies and stuff. And yeah, that's never going to work. <laughs> like as a business, companies, for some reason, Glassdoor is like big enough to do it, I guess. But in this like tiny niche, right? Companies aren't just going to be like, oh, yeah, totally. Like write, write whatever you want about us. You know, we'll, we'll put our logo on there. Just let your users just say whatever they want. So yeah, there were just so many like issues like that. At some point, though, I guess you just have to throw up an MVP in order to um, kind of force those issues out into the open. And then you can kind of figure them out too. So that was another mistake I made. Like I was screwing around with Kubernetes. <laughs> Like literally setting up a Kubernetes cluster for uh, this thing that could have been a static site. It probably would have, there would have been so many benefits to just, literally just building it as like a static, super simple site. It barely ever needs like any kind, like it doesn't have accounts or anything. Yeah. I was like screwing around with Kubernetes for like six months before I actually released it. And just all those, all those mistakes, especially that I think engineers tend to make. But yeah. I made them all. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, you brought an interesting point about knowing who your customers are and how to find them before you build a product. Now that you already have some experience and 
you have you are also building VC list. So do you have like some kind of checklist that you go through before you start building a product or start developing on a new idea? So for me, I think Twitter has proven to be very powerful. I don't have a huge following yet, but it's one thing I'm trying to actually invest more in. I think for people like me who are like kind of developers, not marketers or business people, it's a lot easier to just kind of do stuff and then tweet about it and just say, I'm doing this. And uh, that for whatever reason, I think that, that gets a lot of engagement from people. They, they are interested in that. You can come to them with problems and say, like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. I'm thinking about adding this new feature. Should I do that? Yes or no? You can do polls. You can just like ask people. You can kind of crowdsource answers to questions that you're having. That actually works really well. And that actually is a form of marketing without having to like go down the sort of marketing, I guess, rabbit hole, right? And actually learn like all, all the stuff that like you would learn if you were in like a degree program, right? I think that's a really good way for me and something that I'm trying to do more. Um, just like basically building in public. For whatever reason, people see you doing that and just sharing it. And they're like, hey, like, cool. They want to help out. So I think that's one of the best ways personally, just because of all the like different types of marketing, because you, you can do paid ads and you can do um, guest posts on blogs and like go super deep into SEO and all that kind of like, there's a million different ways to, to approach it. And I think for developers, people like me, maybe the easiest one is to just like talk about what you're doing. You know, it doesn't really take any special knowledge. You don't have to study. You just literally do a thing and then say, hey, I did this thing. I'm thinking about doing this other thing. What do you guys think? And they'll tell you. So that's worked well for me. One of my idols, Peter Levels, he's done that amazingly well. So I'm kind of trying to learn from from people like that and get a little bit better at it. I guess it also like feels more genuine. It's not like you are spamming your followers with some random crap about your product or somehow trying to convince them to buy your product. Your followers also get a say in what you will build in your product. So that also, I think, plays a big role. Exactly. Yeah. And then, yeah, they'll suggest other ways other kind of similar features that they want. And you're like, oh, wow, I didn't think of that. It works well in my experience. We've been speaking about how you are working full-time on Japan Dev and VC List, but there was a period of time when you were employed as well as also working. How was that period? Would you do it again? And what were the things that you would make right if you had to redo it? Yeah, that was a tough period of time. <laughs> because, yeah, I was uh, working full-time as an engineer really for about like the first year and a half or so of Japan Dev, I was working full time and doing both. It was really tough because I'd, I'd literally do a, like a full day of work for my normal job, right? My full-time job. And then I'd finish that and be like, oh yes, finally it's over. And then immediately have to jump into the Japan Dev stuff and basically do a bunch more work. So yeah, I, I don't think I could have sustained that very much longer, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I got really lucky in, in that the business was doing well enough that I felt okay to go full-time on it at around the time when I was really getting pretty burnt out. Because the other thing is like it got worse and worse as it went on. As I actually got clients, was starting to get revenue and things like that, it sort of became a real business. Then it's really hard to do that at the same time. So yeah, that, that was tough. In terms of like things I'd do differently, it's really hard to say. I mean, I could probably have automated a lot more stuff. There was so much manual work, just like operational stuff. It's like day-to-day things just to keep the keep things going like emailing back and forth and doing things manually when i probably could have had like a system to do it that type of thing there's i could have cut down a lot on that and probably saved myself a lot more time and gotten kind of the same result with less stress (laughs) i could have probably relied on other people a little bit more like gotten some upworkers and people off fiverr or whatever like help out with some of the stuff 
that's still something I kind of struggle with. I end up kind of doing everything myself just because I'm kind of afraid to get other people involved, you know? Um, so I still think about that now for ways that I could bring in some other people. But yeah, that, that's one thing I probably could have done a little bit more as well. But yeah, just kind of taking some of the, the responsibility away from myself and delegating it or automating it, I think are probably the only, only real ways that I could have made it much, much better. But it was probably going to be pretty rough regardless, though, I think. <laughs> so you mentioned you were like earlier hesitant about getting like up focus or whatever. I'm making an assumption and you can validate it. Was there some anxiety that if you hire people to work on it, it becomes a thing and you kind of have to ensure it delivers? Did you experience that when working on it? Yeah, definitely. And I was not sure if it was going to work, especially early on, right? Even when we turned it into a kind of a real business and had contracts and stuff, like it wasn't the kind of thing where we had like steady monthly income coming in or anything. So it was like, okay, it worked this month. You know, we made a little money or whatever, but we'll see how it goes next month. And maybe it'll continue, maybe it won't. <laughs> and that was obviously one fear that I had. And it also just adds a lot of complexity as well, because then you're managing, right? If you hire someone, even if it's just like an Upworker, the management overhead actually can be pretty significant. And you can end up spending more time trying to like check their work and make sure that they're working and that, you know, all that kind of stuff than you would just doing it yourself. So that was kind of my thought process early on is like, ah, yeah, I have to write this proposal and like you have to make it super detailed so you can find the right people. And like usually you cycle, you know, through a few people before you find like someone really good. Even then you kind of have to watch them and it's like, yeah, I don't know if it's worth it. So I don't know. There's trade offs, you know. When you are working full time and you are managing your product, you know, there could be some unexpected thing in the middle of the day. So there might be some incident in your product or you might get some kind of client call or, you know, support call or something. Did that bother you in your, you know, normal full time work? That was very scary because you're right. That could happen at any time. Like if the site had kind of gone down or if there'd been like a major issue with a client. I mean, it was, it was a constant fear that I had. So even just that, it was kind of scary, right? Just to have that, that fear in the back of my mind. I don't know. I, I can't really think of any like really major things that went down <laughs> where I had to like take time off from my, my job or anything, thankfully. But honestly, I just got lucky in that sense. I was working at a company that was like pretty flexible. And I think I uh, was able to kind of plan meetings and stuff. Like if, if there was something I had to do for Japan Dev, like try to make sure that I didn't have any meetings that night or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. And there, yeah, there was some, some stuff like that where I try to kind of schedule things around each other because I was having to do like some, uh, some meetings and stuff for Japan Dev too. There were things that were maybe a little bit dicey, but yeah, no major issues though, to be honest. But that was just because I got lucky, you know, it, there could have easily been. <laughs> what kind of vision do you have for Japan Dev? Where do you see Japan Dev X year down the line? And like, do you have some kind of exit strategy for uh, Japan Dev? Yeah, that's a great question. I am still trying to figure it out. I think there are different types of businesses, right? There are the venture-backed, go big or go home businesses. You know, those are the, the kind of the sexy ones that you'll see in TechCrunch and everywhere, right? Where you basically you have people investing in you. They're saying we we want you to get a hundred x, grow a hundred x, basically, and get get this massive return. And uh, I've definitely like accepted the fact that Japan Dev is not that, right? And I'm not going to try to get any kind of investment for it or you know make it this massive company, right? In order to do that, I'd have to completely pivot because the size of the market and everything is just not like it's growing it's not small it's it's good you can have a healthy business but it's not going to be this crazy hyper growth company right so that's kind of off the table 
So yeah, I've accepted the fact that it's basically a lifestyle business, but I'm just trying to make it as good of a lifestyle business as possible. And of course, continue to grow and continue to make it a better experience for users and everything. I'm, I'm constantly trying to think of ways to do that. Needless to say, I'm not trying to be the next Zuckerberg, you know what I'm saying? I just want it to be a, a nice little business that kind of supports my lifestyle, gives me freedom to kind of do what I want. That's really my, my ultimate goal is just to, to be able to yeah, do what I want. And it, that includes things like trying to automate stuff, just that the time that I personally need to spend on it is lower. Obviously, without, you know, I, I don't want to decrease the quality of the service. So thinking about how can I delegate to other people to kind of at least maintain or kind of grow at like a reasonable amount. And when the market expands, like, for example, if uh, Japan opens up the borders again, and there's a flow of new people, it's like, how do we capture that and make sure that we grow with the market, of course, as I believe that will continue to grow. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I want it to keep growing. You know, I'm not trying to go be this like public company CEO or anything like that, though. So yeah, that's my current thinking. Right. So that's a very interesting point. And obviously, as you said, uh, you're not trying to get some kind of VC funding or make progress like 100x progress. What kind of goals in like, not about Japan, but what kind of goals do you have for your life? How do you find out you are making progress? Like what kind of North Star metric would you say you have for your life? I think just the f- level of freedom that I have is really what I kind of look at as my like personal North Star. It's like, if I want to go do something, can I just go do it? If I want to buy something, can I buy it? If I, if I wanted to just go you know, live somewhere else for like a month, could I do that? Probably right now, no, unfortunately. I guess that's really the metric though, is like freedom, <laughs> if that makes sense. That makes sense very much. <laughs> yeah. Not having to spend my time doing what others want me to, being able to just kind of live on my own terms and do what I want, ultimately. <laughs> so you mentioned that you value freedom a lot. Are you yeah. American by any chance? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I am. So I think we've had a productive one hour. So we will not take more of your time and like come to the last question. What is one technology or field that you are interested in seeing how it grows in the next 20 years or so? It doesn't have to be Web3 or DeFi or autonomous driving, but is there like an industry where maybe you are really interested in how it goes in the next 20 years or maybe maybe an industry where you want to build something to capture a large market? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. I'm not sure that there is really any specific industry that I'm trying to go into. I am kind of like the, you know, how there's like shiny object syndrome. You ever heard of that? Yes. Oh, shiny. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, it's the latest thing. I want to, I want to work on this. Kubernetes. Exactly. Like I want to use Kubernetes. I've suffered from that in the past. Definitely. I think I am getting over it though. And now I'm kind of going the other way where I'm like, you know what? Like. Web3, that looks cool, I guess. You know, it's interesting. And I see that more and more people are kind of jumping on that bandwagon and leaving their other kind of products and stuff to say like, yeah, I'm all in on Web3. I'm going to build all this crypto stuff. And I look at that and I'm like, oh, okay. So you're telling me that there's like space open back in Web2 now that I can kind of grab. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, cool. Go on, do it. Like, great. Thank you. Because I actually still, I still really do believe that there is um, just so much potential, right? In like 
the older kind of like just like building just basic kind of websites. You know, there's so many things that are just still not using uh, the power of the internet at all. So many industries. And to me, like this mad dash for like the latest thing, I've never really understood it personally. Like I'm not really that interested in like crypto and Web3 and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think it's cool. I I don't want to switch over to it and abandon my, you know, Web2 or like my current projects or anything like that. And to me, it's, it's like, Cool, like more, more, uh, more of the pie, more of the Web two pie for me, <laughs> you know. So that's that. That's my current thinking. It's like there's actually a lot of value to be had in like the less sexy but like fundamentally like business focused companies. And if anything, there's going to be even more of a chance as people move away from that because it feels kind of premature to be honest. Nowadays, I uh, I think I've cured my shiny object syndrome and I've replaced it with dull object syndrome. I just, if something is like old or just like anything that's not like the latest technology I'm interested in, I feel like there's actually still so much value that can be uh, be extracted from it. I think the answer was very insightful and maybe I might also change my thinking in that direction. <laughs> Web2 is where it's at. I, I just think that the internet itself, it just unlocked so much potential, you know, and we're still really at the beginning of like the value that's going to be created just from the internet. And I know everyone's trying to move on to the next thing or whatever, because it's been, you know, the internet has been around for so long now, but there's still so much, so much value to, to uncover, I think. Yeah, I think uh, like, instead of thinking in, in terms of like, I'm going to build this Web3 stuff, we should be thinking of in terms of what problem I'm actually trying to solve and whatever suitable technology is, we should use that. If it is, if it turns out that Web3 is the most suitable thing, then use that. And if it turns out Web2 is perfectly capable of solving that problem, then use that. I completely agree. It will change the world. It very well might. A lot of really, really smart people think it will. So, I mean, I'm cautiously optimistic. I just don't feel quite ready to make the jump personally. Thank you for your time, Eric. And thank you for your time, listeners. That is all for this episode of the Tech Culture Podcast. You can find the links to all the topics we talked about in the show notes. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at TechCultureBot. Catch you the next time. Bye.